What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I say this most weeks. I'm feeling pretty good right now. And I, you know what? I think the reason why I say it is because I don't do my filming. Filming? No, recording. I don't do my recording when I'm not feeling good. I wait till, yeah, I'm feeling all right. I'm going to do some stuff. That's the mood I'm in right now. Feeling good. Today on the show, we have Nancy Wilson. You might know Nancy Wilson from the band Heart. And as if being a rock star is not enough, just like last week's guest, Danny Elfman, she also dove into the film music world. Vanilla Sky. That movie messed me up. I saw that when I was 18, and I reconsidered what was reality for about a month. Still messes with me sometimes to this day. She scored Vanilla Sky, Jerry McGuire, Show Me the Mo's Right. Actually, I just said, you know, the, the quote is show me the money. And I was trying to think of a guitar reference that starts with an M. And that immediately, that's that's the first thing that came to mind. What was show me the, show me the, um, 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 uh, what's an amp? That, show me the milkman. Show me the, I'm looking around my room trying to find other music, you know. But Mo's right. That's, I like that because it's kind of a deep cut guitar thing. I, I don't know if they make Mose rights anymore. All I've seen are vintage ones. Anyways, almost famous, Elizabeth Town, Nancy Wilson scored those. That's pretty dope. And of course, Hart is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's crazy. That's amazing. On their first album, Dreamboat Annie, was recorded in 1975 on a 16-track machine. The big hits were Magic Man, Crazy on You, one of the coolest guitar intros of all time. That's Nancy Wilson. She's on the show. Let's hit it. You guys hip to DistroKid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year... You get unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put, out, I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up. And I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out. Or my managers work with their managers and we work out, you know, whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing. And neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set! If you'd like to give them a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Uh, well, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to have you on the show. It's good to be here, Corey. So tell me where you're at. You said you just moved. You're in Sonoma County, Northern California. Yeah, Sonoma County. We, we got here just in time for the shutdown. And we're really glad we got out of L.A. when we did because, you know, it was a little hairy in L.A. because there's so much, mm-hmm. a lot of people running around there. But, you know, it's a really beautiful, peaceful kind of nature-type area here. A lot of wineries and hippies and old hippies and stuff. So it's kind of fun, you know. It's really fun to be in a really relaxed atmosphere like this. You mentioned getting out of L.A., and it sparked a thought in my mind. There are a lot of these music cities. You being from Seattle, a music city. Yeah, yeah. And I I would say, so there's kind of like the big three L.A., Nashville, New York. But of course, then there's these kind of other music cities that I would consider great, like Seattle, Austin, Chicago, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Memphis. You know, there's there's a handful. Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah. absolutely. And New Orleans. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. Of course. There's lots. Yeah, there, there are a lot. But so out of the big three, it seems like 
There's a lot of artists moving out of L.A. right now. What do you attribute that to? Have you noticed that yourself? Well, you know, I moved to L.A. for more business purposes than because, I, you know, I miss Seattle. I'm a Seattle person, really. I'm a Northwestern yeah. girl, even with all the rain and everything. But, you know, L.A. was just never my place. It, it's just it's such a big um, industry type of a place which is really fun at times, but then other times you're kind of like, oh, do I have to feel competitive when I show mm. up anywhere to some kind of an event or something? And I guess I'm just, that's not my, that's not my vibe. So, you know, just give me some trees and some dogs. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, I'm a North, I'm a Midwest kid. Oh, yeah. You know, I, that's for me, that's so, I love going to LA and I love being in LA a lot. But I like being able to say, oh, yeah, I'm going home now. Yeah. And same with the um, Midwest. <laughs> same with New York for me. The energy in New York is so great. I love New York. I love to go there and like soak it up and then kind of go home, you know, not be living there. <laughs> you mentioned competitiveness. Is that something you feel like has been present for you your entire career, more towards the beginning, middle? Where, where do you... Does, or has it just been the consistent? Yeah, I don't really relate to the competitiveness of the industry town type of a thing. Yeah. You know, I've always been, me and my sister Anne, you know, with heart, have always been really kind of apart and different from what's expected of girls to really be doing in rock and roll. So we, uh, we're from a military Marine Corps family, so we were doggedly determined to sort of have our way with the music business, you know? And it sort of worked out pretty well for us, I think. But we were just not afraid of what was expected. And we just kind of did what we wanted and got away with it. <laughs> In that time frame, when you joined Heart, it seemed like, to me, from what I, I was not around at the time, but it seems like it there was some sort of air about it that maybe unfairly seemed like this boys club and even in the guitar like it felt like people weren't marketing to girl like i have two daughters that love watching girl performers and girl rock stars and that's i see that empowering them as they're watching it yeah did you feel like you had that as a guiding thing for you or were you just playing just because that's what you i mean i of course i assume that you're just doing what you want to do. But did you feel any extra pressure of one of the, I mean, you were one of the biggest bands in the world and <laughs> leading kind of that sort of, did you feel that, uh, I don't know what the right word is, pressure of of being a girl-led rock star band? No, because I think the reason being that we started at such a young age, we didn't have any kind of sexual identity attached to ourselves yet. We were just kids. We were just tomboys. We were just going out and trying to be like the Beatles, you know, trying to be the Beatles. Um, and all of our role models for basically were guy rocker people, you know, Zeppelin and the Beatles and, oh, just a million great things we got to cut our teeth on um, musically. But there weren't any, I mean, Janis Joplin was kind of rhythm and blues, but she wasn't really rock per se. And... There just wasn't a lot of, you know, female examples of role models for us at all. And if it, if you're talking about something but like the generation before us, before the rock movement, before the explosion of the late 60s and the 70s, it was like um, Judy Garland, you know, <laughs> and, and those were like the the strong women of the my mom's generation before us. And so I think and they were all pretty I think kind of tragic in many cases, you know, they had hard life, they lived hard lives and they were trying to be spearheading a movement for women with kind of unsuccessfully. Their lives were kind of sad as it turned out for the most part. So there was no prize to try to become a woman in leadership role inside of a musical context. <laughs> no prizes there. I still am confused on the whole pop culture of that time with disco getting huge and then disco <laughs> sucks and all this stuff. <laughs> where, where, and then and then into the 80s where it was just 
you know, in some some cases, kind of gaudy, self-serving oh, versions yeah. of rock and roll. Like for sure, through those <laughs> first couple decades of you playing in heart, did you feel like you needed to adapt yourself as artists or you as a musician through that? That's a really good question. I mean, there was such a stylistic shift every few, I don't know, five, ten years as as you go through. And the style, fashion changes and music changes. And here comes, like, in the late mid-70s, late-70s, where we started out, it was a pot culture. It was a mind-expanded sort of pot culture, you know, where it was, there was meaningfulness and there were long sort of five minute songs, you know, like the attention span was long and people could concentrate on long winded songs, you know. And then when the eighties kind of rolled around, the whole fashion changed again and MTV came out with, you know, all this kind of self gratification, um, you know, sort of like that ego driven, cocaine-driven culture, you know, and it all turned very corporate and very visual and very image-driven kind of stuff. And and so then we were kind of like, we were kind of like fish out of water in the 80s in a lot of ways because we came out of a more mind-expanded culture from the late 60s or in through the 70s, you know. So I don't know, I'm not complaining, but it, we, we had greater success in the 80s than we ever did in the, to begin with. So then, you know, comes the 90s and then the fashion changes all over again, like overnight. It was like a flash mob that happened with all the corporate sort of stylistic, you know, production style of the 80s and the big bombast and the big hair and the big, you know, ego driven kind of thing. And then it was like the 90s all of a sudden. And here comes Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nirvana and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam, you know. And we came back from the 80s back home to Seattle where all those guys were. And we got to know them really, really well. And they were really, we were so scared they would hate us for being such, you know, such um, shallow 80s dinosaurs, you know, with big hair and costumery and all that stuff. So we were just scared to go home in a lot of ways. And those guys were sweet to us. They were sweet on us. And we're still close with those guys. Um, even the guy, Mike Inez from Alice in Chains, he was our bass player in heart for like five years. And we all kind of still hook up whenever we can. But yeah, but we were just so like, you see it, these sort of decades go by and the fashion changing so drastically and you just don't know if you're going to like survive the next fashion trend or not. But so far, you know, so far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we might be in a shift right now. I do too. And I, I feel like also within the digital world, my interpretation is that, you know, a lot of these trends are of course, generational and some of them seemingly shorter in time span, but also sometimes app driven. So uh, MySpace yeah. to Facebook to Instagram, kind of Snapchat, uh, TikTok, you know, there's there's all these things that are trying to capture the attention and capture their own little culture yeah. and subculture within them. That's right. What do you say to artists right now that are finding themselves and finding their identity, trying to keep up with all that, yet trying to maintain their own artistic integrity? Yeah, that's a really, another really great question. I think artistic integrity is fleeting at best. Mm. I think it's something to always try for and strive for. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of artistic integrity in, you know, um, you know, I've got a stockpile of it in my back room, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's 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 dangerous place to try to capture that because it, things are so fleeting from minute to minute, from app to app, from TikTok to you know the next viral thing that comes along, and I think it's uh, I don't know I think it's kind of slapstick humor in general, like. The, the TikTok of it all is really, it's funny. You know, you've, you, yeah. you see people doing really funny shit and, and you're kind of like, wow, 
This is what takes the place of a lot of other things in your life that you you could have a lot of more kind of gratification, satisfaction with people that you know and friends that you want to talk to, stuff like that. But it's so instantaneous and it's so like cotton candy. It melts in your mouth in two seconds and it's gone. So, you know, it's like an ice cream cone, you know, it's gone. And that app also feels less like people want to be marketed to or sold something mm-hmm. like it for it feels like that is more just like hey we're here for fun this is a playground yeah if we want if we want to we're fine being marketed to or like tell me what project you're working on with the other apps but here it's interesting to see what what communities and what platforms people are willing to willing to open up on and i don't know i don't yeah. know if there's some parallel there with with the different decades and leading forward and different communities, you know, it's like the grunge scene. All right, here's, this is what we're here for. We are not here for the big hair and the yeah. visual thing. Yeah. Or even the 80s, it was just like, what we are here for is the showmanship and the stage and the image. Like, this is what we are here for. I am here to show you how good I am at guitar. You know, it's like, okay, cool. Like that's, watch me, do my, I, I, watch me do my rock face, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and have big hair and yeah. Boodly, 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 boo. How many notes can <laughs> I squeeze into a bar? And yeah. you know, let me showboat a little bit harder. Yeah. All that stuff in the eighties was so over so quickly. Like I said a minute ago, it was like a flash mob. It was suddenly that there was these big, Guys just, you know, gooning at the camera and sucking in their cheeks and licking their lips and trying to do the bedroom eyes. And, you know, how many boodly, boodly, boodly boos can you sit, fit into one, you know, rock song? And then the next moment, they were all dropped from their label the next day. As soon as we heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, we saw that on MTV. It was like, whoa, this is what we're all doing now. And that's what we're never going to do again because we're sick to death of it already. And the whole culture just shifted on a dime. It was really an interesting moment, I thought. And I was not um, unhappy <laughs> to, to see the shift. I was ready for the shift like everybody else at the same time. That is a, a very telling thing. I think there's things like that in all of human history where certain, like you use the term self-gratification. If you're kind of in that, culture that seems pretty easy to just die immediately like if you're in a (laughs) self-gratification culture it's like you might want to take a look at history and see how that has handled and when it's just like we're done with that Yeah, it just chops right off it's gone yeah it's interesting the same thing with the beatles when the beatles hit the planet you know when they dropped from the sky into american culture it was, we already knew it was coming. We'd already heard a little bit and seen a little bit about them. And it was another cultural shift that was so extreme. The whole world changed. The world changed radically in a very short period of time. It was another, like a lunar landing. That was another one. You know, it's like, boom, everybody's in the same living room, the American living room watching the lunar landing or the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or... Smells like teen spirit, you know, on MTV. It was an interesting cultural shift. That it's it's always kind of cool when that happens, because you feel like unified with your country. You know, yeah. we're all like we're watching the same program at the same time in our in our common living rooms. We're, we share this DNA. There's something happening to all of us at the same time. So I, I really like. When that happens, I kind of miss it sometimes. Want it to happen right now again. <laughs> I heard that you actually played an early gig with the band Mookie Blaylock, <laughs> who was the original iteration of Pearl Jam. Is this true? Did you play with oh. <laughs> the first iteration of Pearl Jam at one point? Well, I went and I saw them in Seattle. I went to one of their earliest shows when Eddie Vedder was a brand new lead singer after Andrew Woods had died, right? So when we came back to Seattle with our tails between our legs after the 80s, you know, roaring 80s happened, we had a friend of ours, my my dearest, longest 
time guy friend, Kelly Curtis, was the manager of Moogie Blaylock and the manager of um, when it was Andrew Woods in the band, um, when they were, uh, what were they called then? Oh, I'm spacing it. Too bad. But anyway, when Andrew Woods died, we came to Seattle and we all went to his memorial in in a house in Seattle when say bring your dogs because it, it'll cheer everybody up because everyone's going to be crying because Andrew Woods just OD'd and so when they when they got back to get that's when we met all those guys in Soundgarden and you know Pearl Jam and those guys you know Screaming Trees, Mark Arm, all those guys we were all in the same kind of a celebration together for Andrew Woods right before uh, Eddie Vedder joined up. So I went to see Mookie Blaylock for the minute that they were called Mookie Blaylock. (laughs) But I didn't get up on stage there. I just remember watching Eddie so nervous. He was just studying his shoes. You know, he didn't have any kind of stage confidence yet or anything like that. And I just love those. I love that about them because they were bringing this new guy into, you know, from San Diego into their band. And they already had like a legendary Seattle kind of status going on for themselves. And yeah, and so they were just getting started with their new singer. And they came to us and said, you know, we, we lost our record contract when Andrew died. And you guys could maybe spot us for a couple of months, you know, like, so we said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll just write a little note and IOU and, and keep you guys, you know, keep the lights on for a couple of months here. And then they got their, their shit together and they got picked up and they survived it. But uh, an interesting time, like the chain of the guard, Seattle, kind of a Seattle royalty situation, I think. But those guys are the sweetest and still, we're still close with them whenever we get a yeah. chance to see them. Amazing. I want to move on to talk a little bit about your playing and your approach to guitar because we're a guitar podcast. (laughs) Yes, we are. So (laughs) in the context of rock music, there's a handful of bands that have used or utilized the acoustic guitar. And some bands have tried to utilize the acoustic guitar with varying degrees of success or (laughs) actual like musical input. (laughs) And you seem to have really mastered the use of acoustic guitar in rock music and hard rock music as well. Is there an approach to playing the acoustic guitar in a big rock band setting? Is there a philosophy that you have with that? I certainly do have a philosophy about it. Uh, Well, you know, the reason an ovation guitar was ever um, invented was... In, for the context of an acoustic inside of a larger, loud rock stage set, setting, to try to avoid the the um, typical feedback situation that you would have in that setting, so so I was kind of a poster girl for ovation for a minute, but I never liked the sound of it. And by the time they invented better pickups for real acoustics, you know, I mean, I loved the ovation for for its purpose fullness in the setting but I always wanted to prefer I always missed the sound of a real like a dreadnought acoustic though it was a harder thing to apply to a big rock loud rock show and so uh eventually they they invented that for me (laughs) and the way I approach it is in not in a wimpy way I I approach acoustic guitar like a percussion instrument you know, so it's there to pound on, you know, it's there to be really to, to be very uh, expressive with and not to be shy with because <laughs> it doesn't really work in rock, you know, to be shy about playing. You have to you have to go you have to go all the way and beyond a little bit to to be um, demonstrative and to be a rhythm player. You have to have rhythm. You know, and you have to do your rocker size while you're playing, you know. So <laughs> I I kind of, I just, it's my main man, the acoustic. It's where I started. But, I, of course, I love, I, I love my um, 63 Blue Telecaster beyond, beyond belief. It's, you know, that's my other, I married the, that guitar. That's my, that's my husband guitar. 
the acoustic is kind of my my boyfriend guitar, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, so it's uh yeah, it's just sort of something to pound on and I think like Neil Young, like his yeah. style of playing is very percussive as well. And I got a lot I learned a lot from Neil Young's playing and I learned really a lot from Paul Simon's playing initially for the finger style stuff he's so good at and it kind of invented inside of rock music, you know, even though it's folky, but I think it all belongs, you know, it all belongs inside of a rock and roll context because it's not one thing or the other. It's, it's all those things fit together, you know, to make something cooler than what's expected. Yeah, absolutely. What about the use of a 12-string acoustic guitar versus a 6-string? When do you decide to use that? And is there an approach difference with that? Yeah, 12-string is a whole different animal because it's a, it's a chimey thing. You know, you just want the, all the sustain and the chime of that sound. It's harder to be percussive on a 12-string. So you use that for those um, kind of ethereal moments or you want chime, you know, or you can also do the uh, Nashville tuned type guitar where you take the tiny strings, not all 12, but you just take the small ones and it makes a whole different statement like that. It sounds kind of like a 12 string, but then again, even more ethereal than that. So, yeah, so there's all kinds of ways to, <laughs> to play acoustic. I haven't really used like pedals so much with acoustic. I've tried it. You know, you can do obviously the phase shifting and the flanging kind of thing for for that chimey acoustic, otherworldly kind of sound. And that usually works really well. Anytime I hear, I've heard a lot of people use chorus on acoustic guitar, right. but as soon as I hear that, it just feels dated feels to me. Dated. There's something about it. Yeah. I know. And no chorus pedal ever goes slow enough. Right. Mm. It's like, rear, 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 rear. You want yeah. it to go, you know, yeah. it's never slow enough for me. <laughs> Any kind of a shift, phase shifters or chorus shifting or. Well, we're going to have to call up a pedal company and get you a chorus pedal that goes the speed that you want. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should invent one or something. And <laughs> I don't know. A signature pedal. There you go. Yeah. Right. Well, I've got a couple of signature guitars. I've got a, a Martin signature that I worked with Martin guitars to, to invent, to create in in the style of the Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young type of acoustic three-piece back. Yeah. Dreadnought thing. And your Epiphone, too. You have an Epiphone electric, yeah, right? I've got an Epiphone Fanatic signature model now. And it's affordable. And it's a, you know, it's a screamer. So you can do anything with the five-way toggle on that guitar because it'll it'll scream or you can go kind of jazzy if you want. It's really versatile and affordable. <laughs> all right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. As far as playing guitar parts in a band, playing, like you mentioned, playing rhythmic, strumming, that sort of thing. You mentioned 12-string for chimey, openness. You're talking about function, and you're talking about kind of how it fits in the context of a band. But occasionally, we have to come up with something that is a signature, iconic part for something. And you have one of the best iconic intros of all time with Crazy On You. Thank you. I mean, there's there's just so many, there's a lot of tunes where it's just, these are iconic parts. If you play this song, you have to do this exact thing. Some songs, like you're saying, oh, your acoustic part, it's the percussive thing. You can get away with, there's there's a wider range of what's allowed to be played when it comes to crafting iconic parts 
or signature lines, do you have an approach to that that's different than just playing parts to fit to meld with a band? Yeah, another great question. You've really got some good questions in your pocket. But yeah, I think when I sat down to try to write Silver Wheels to intro Crazy on You, you know, because at that time we were doing a lot of cabarets up in the Vancouver, BC area, and uh, we were playing a lot of cover songs like Yes songs, you know, and Steve Howe of Yes had quite a few of these kind of acoustic intros to those Yes songs. So I learned all of those and they were not easy. None of them are easy. But when we were making our first album, Dream Mode Annie, I thought, well, why don't I just be a show off? Because I think I feel kind of competent as a player. So why don't I just be a big show off and write an intro for this first song on the album called Crazy On You. And I had in mind a song that I'd learned on Sounds of Silence album that Paul Simon had played called Angie, which is an instrumental. So it was an A minor with like, you know, um, a, a walking bass line that goes down. So I kind of th- thought, well, I should rip this off somehow because it's a really cool part. So I kind of made my own version of the Angie thing, you know, by imitating it sort of. You know, when you do that stuff throughout your career, I think you imitate a lot of your favorite things, but it sort of turns out to be something that's your own, even though you're you're borrowing a vibe or, or a jam for somebody else, somewhere else, it still ends up your own thing. So I think that's pretty common, you know, in rock and roll, if everybody's kind of imitating other people and coming up with something that's different. I thought in on this album, you know, my new album, somebody from the record company, Carry On Music, said, you should do an instrumental on this album because, you know, and it was like, oh, great. Okay, now I have to come up with something iconic and I have to dedicate it to Eddie fucking Van Halen, you know. So I put it off, but I told people I was going to do it. So I put it off, not it's like, okay, now I've forced myself to do it because I've talked about doing it and I can't yeah. not. So I painted myself into an ultimate corner musically there. And um, I went through my phone and I was like, okay, what did I record? You know, late one night, there was something in there somewhere and I found like one piece of the puzzle that I thought might be really cool to put in the center of the song because Eddie had played me something over the phone one time with an acoustic guitar that I had given him because mm. he didn't really have an acoustic. I said, no, you do now. So anyway, he played me this beautiful piece over the phone in a hotel one time. And uh, so I was trying to channel that, you know, I was trying to recreate that. So I did work on it and I was like, okay, one piece fit to, in, there's one piece for the center of the thing. And then, but what's the tuning? I want a, a drop D tuning because it's got a beautiful landscape of a sound all to itself. When I, when I had the drop D figured out, I was like, I could use the harmonics to intro and outro this, this middle section that's going to be rocking. So it sort of fell together gradually like that. Um, and I'm really happy how it turned out because it's, it takes, it borrows from the melody for jump to the tip of the hat for Eddie's amazing writing, you know, his amazing, like his major chords that he always was so wonderful. You know, his smile was like his major chords that he always used in his writing. And that was something so particularly wonderful about Eddie's writing because a lot of people would just go bluesy, pentatonic, minor scales or whatever, minor chord changes, shift, minor structures, you know, chord structure. But he was always so major and positive sounding with his changes. So the drop D thing worked out really well in that way for me because it's got this just a, a happiness, a joy, a joyful thing to it. So you talked about your new album, which I have a question about that, but I want to set it up by saying... You've obviously had a lot of success over several decades, hit songs, 
heart is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> right. You've scored many movies. You've done a lot. Yeah. And I've done a lot. <laughs> you, you've done a lot of things, but you're still continuing to create, which I love. What keeps you motivated to keep writing and playing right now? Well, another wonderful question, I got to say, Corey. Um. <laughs> well, I'm a curious person, and I, I, I love your music, so I'm, I have lots of questions, and hopefully... <laughs> it kind of yeah. goes right to the center, right to the core of why you're a creative person to begin with. You know, like, what even started... Like, when the Beatles landed on the lunar surface... You know, when the Beatles landed in my life, I was driven from that moment forward to be them, to be them, not to marry them or date them, you know, to be them. And to get closer to that, um, the magic of that, and have a guitar and learn how to play guitar and learn how to write songs and sing songs. But even before that, we have our whole family was really musical grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. We would all sit around and sing and play with play ukuleles, old pub Irish pub songs, off color songs, you know, chiming in with the beer, you know, kind of thing. And I picture that kind of like the way Paul McCartney grew up, like in, in the English pub singing, you know, like people would just chime in. And anyway, so we came by it completely honestly the musical kind of hell bent you know to to learn music and do music for the rest of time it worked out okay you know like but i i feel like as a creative person it's something i could never not do it's like it's sanity it creates sanity for me to be able to express and um create and i'm i'm kind of a show-off as it turns out i I mean, I used to be really good when I was really young and I'd go down to the music store and sit around and like pick out the best guitar in the place and sit there and just try to like blow people's minds, you know, just sit there and play the guitar and people be like, hey, you're not you're pretty good for a little gal, you know, and stuff. And I think there's just something connects to your inner, inner, inner soul as as a creative person that is really satisfying because you think you're you can you feel like you're giving something out into the world that's important and it, it is i mean there's nothing as uh healing in so many ways as music is you know we would go have these we go on tour and have these meet and greets before the show and person after person after person would just be saying that like you've saved my life with your songs you know music this your music got me through the hurt the hurt that i couldn't you know i couldn't i couldn't have lived through that without your songs you know and i think that's that's a space that music occupies and songwriting gives the world to the world and i think it's really important really important stuff and it's big it's bigger than we are <laughs> so I'm I'm happy to be, you know, a creative type person that feels a burning desire to always be creating something that might mean something to someone else. Yeah. Do you feel like when you write for film or when you compose those kind of scores versus writing music for your albums or music with heart, do you feel like you're able to express yourself in a different way or are you solely focus on expressing the emotion of the film. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, ch uh, difference between writing a song, per se, you know, and working on a score piece. For one thing, you, you, you kind of need to know how to clear the decks, you know, like what to leave out, what, what not to do, how to leave space and atmosphere to hang on its own without filling everything up all the time musically, playing all over everything leaving space for the dialogue, leaving space for the, for the picture to do what it's doing. So it's a whole different ball of wax, you know, for, from songwriting, which I think I learned a lot of, of from that I was able to bring back into the songwriting process too. Because 
it's like, you know, what, what to leave out, where to leave, where to hang, you know, where to not show off and let it breathe and stuff like that. It's a really good lesson for any musician, I think, to, to get under their belt because the longer I'm a musician and I play music, the more I have kind of utilized that whole capability of shutting up, like what not to do, you know, when to shut up and sit down and let the other players have their space. And like when I did this album, for instance, with these players in Seattle, all of them have been in heart. And I've played a lot with all these players quite a bit. So we know each other's style of playing. And so we know when to kind of leave the space for the other player and when not to step on it. It's kind of magical stuff because, you know, when you want to like rush in and play and emphasize something and then, you know, you kind of learn how to leave it, leave it alone sometimes and let the other guy show off in your, in where you normally might want to be showing off yourself. You let that guy do his particular stylistic thing right there. And, you know, it's a conversation in that way. And it's, well, I think, yeah, playing, uh, writing for film. I always wrote kind of like songwriting anyway, because that's where I come from. That's where I live. But, but then like allowing space to happen was the biggest lesson, I guess, in how to score stuff. Yeah. I want to talk about limitations. Obviously, a lot of people's general instinct is, oh, if I'm limited by something, it's not going to be as good as if I have more of something or whatever. Uh-huh. And today's day and age, we record on digital, most people at least, and we have this unlimited number of possibilities. But I heard your first, Hart's first album, Dreamboat Annie, was recorded on a 16 track in 1975, including Crazy on You and Magic Man, those hit songs. Right. Do you feel like you were able to be more creative in those moments with not having to worry about, this is the amount of channels we have, so we're just doing it? Or do you feel like when you all of a sudden had these endless possibilities like we have now, do you feel like that's more of a creative opportunity for you. Oh my God. <laughs> well, well put. It's so about decisiveness. It's so much about decisiveness because when there's every option of what's possible to choose between, it's much more difficult to be decisive about any of it. So in 1975, we didn't have the options. We just had the idea to get a good take all at once in the same room at the same time together. And we'd have to probably do, you know, five, 10, 15, maybe 20 takes in a row with a break or here and there, but all the way through, you know, and then you'd, you'd kind of go into the control room and you'd listen back and you'd go, fuck, I, oh, I should have done, I should have tuned up or I should have not done that bit or I should have, I goofed up in that part right there. So let's go do it again, you know? And so you go and do it like a thousand times and then you go and listen to it every couple of takes. And then you find one that feels like the glory train, the glory train. That's the glory train right there. That's the version. That's the take. And once in a while you would have the first half of take five, and the second half of take 15 really wanted to splice that together because that was the glory train, first half of the glory train, but the second half was that glory train on that take. So we'd get out the razor blades, right? <laughs> and cut the physical tape, splice on it without even a safety. You know, it was like, okay, razor blades are cheap, used to be the saying, you know, but... <laughs> This particular performance is not, you know, so it better better cut it correctly. So you'd have to, you know, take the big reel-to-reel tape and find the downbeat. Back and forth, forward and backward, and find the downbeat and cut on the downbeat. And, you know, all that stuff that there's no, it's, there's no more of that anymore. But but it was really a, an exercise in decisiveness because you had to, you had to know what you're doing instead of trying to 
have all these endless opportunities to change your mind. You know, you just had to get get to it and do it. Keep going until you got it. <laughs> I know that you guys are, you in particular, are a big Led Zeppelin fan and that Hart plays Led Zeppelin tunes a lot still to this day. <laughs> and I saw a video of you playing Stairway to Heaven at the Kennedy Center Honors in front of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. With... <laughs> Jason Bonham, John Bonham's son on the drums, and just seeing, uh, I guess, the emotional impact watching, you know, from the video I saw, you see the camera of Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and seeing them get emotional and you and Anne getting emotional playing the tune. What did that moment mean for you playing that song in that context? Yeah, well, we didn't see what was happening up in the... the, uh you know, where the, they were sitting up in the upper level up there. So we didn't know what was happening until we saw the, the edited footage later, a few weeks later, when it was going to air. And our experience as at the time was really nerve-wracking, you know, because you know, not only is it you're playing Stairway to Heaven for Led Zeppelin themself, themselves, but you know the president and first lady of the United States are there. All these dignitaries were there, and it was Washington D.C. For Christ's sake, you know you're in the the lap of the seat of government, you know, and with the president in in the room. And it was like, okay, well, okay, well, if there's ever a time to try to get something right, now would be that time, you know. <laughs> so yeah, we were kind of. Um, taking a really cleansing, deep yoga type breath, you know, before we walked out there and my knees were shaking, of course, you know, like, okay, there's no pressure, you know, okay. But then, you know, the idea was to be deliberate and take it slow, <laughs> you know, cause and don't make a mistake. And it was cold. It was December that time we were there. We rehearsed one time with all of the uh, sections in one big room. It was freezing cold, um, big drafty place. My hands were f- kind of frozen. And we. St- I tried to start at rehearsal. I tried to start Stairway to Heaven. My hands were so cold. I was like really screwing it up, you know, because it's, it's kind of not easy to play either. So the guys in the band were like, if you want us to shadow you on the day, so tomorrow, when we do this, I'll play, I'll shadow you and play it with you. So if you screw it up, you know, it'll be there. It's like, no, I just have to warm up my hands. It'll be fine. Don't worry about, it. you know, you don't have to help me. So the next day I was even doubly more nervous because it was still cold and I've, I had my hands underneath my husband's yeah. <laughs> armpits, you know, before we walked out there because I had to have warm hands. There was nothing but that warming my hands somehow that could help me get it done. Right. You know, so, you know, it was a little nerve wracking and then, um, but it turned out to be such a beautiful thing as it turned out later to see Zeppelin, you know, I think because Jason Bonham, too, the son of Don Bonham was there, I think that was a large part of their emotionalism, watching the song go down, because, you know, he was a kid growing up with, when they were writing those songs, and and his dad was around in Zeppelin at the time. So, you know, I th- and that's kind of a family thing for those guys, I think, to see. Jason up there. He was in Hart for a while, too, Jason was. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it's a family affair, no doubt. Yeah, that's great. Well, as we wrap up here, is there anything you would have to say to aspiring guitar players or aspiring artists that look up to you as a role model that any any just particular piece of wisdom on the front of your mind for aspiring guitar players or artists? Oh, wow. Um, well, my stock answer is, what would you tell young people coming into the business? My stock answer is usually 
I'd turn back if I were you because (laughs) (laughs) it's a, it's kind of a mind bending siege. You have to be, I think what I would really say seriously, honestly say is be competent, learn your craft, get good and make it all about your passion for it. You know, not just your ego gratification for about doing it or you know, showing, showboating about it, but just uh, take it seriously. Take it internally into your deepest, deepest heart of hearts and mean it. Don't pose at it, but mean it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Well, thank you. It really means a lot to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time. And hopefully your dogs caught the squirrel or (laughs) that they're at least now just hanging out and playing together. They never got the squirrel. (laughs) The squirrel. We have a blue squirrel that sh- shot out of here faster than lightning. So dogs mm. will never catch that blue squirrel. But yeah, we had a really good time talking to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate Bye. it. And uh, thank thank you for everything. I really like the new music that you have. And it's really fun to hear that story about Eddie and the connection to that tune as well. Yeah, thanks. Well, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for sharing All right. time. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. We'll talk soon. Later. All right. Now, you guys couldn't see it, but she had some dogs in the background that were looking pretty awesome. I don't know. Those dogs were cool. And I miss... I used to have dogs around the house. We used to foster greyhounds when I was a kid. We had probably eight or nine dogs in the house at a time. Had a Collie. Had a Maltese at one point. Had a handful of standard poodles, toy poodles, whippets. Not talking about those things that people are messing with as extracurriculars. I'm talking about the dog, like small greyhounds. Anyways, uh, but this this conversation with Nancy was really nice. I enjoyed that. I think she seems really cool and would be fun to hang out in person at some point. Thank you guys so much for joining. I had a good time today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'll see you next week with bass player jazz ambassador Christian McBride. Don't miss it. See you then.